0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a
1: verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 115th program in this series. In the previous message, I was in John chapter 18, verse 10. This was when Peter decided to resist the arrest of Jesus. Jesus. Peter decided to lunge out into the crowd of soldiers, and he attacked probably the weakest person there, the one person who was the least likely to resist. And this was the servant of the high priest. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, this wasn't exactly a sword. A better translation of this word is a long ceremonial knife, and it's probable that this knife was used for the sacrifice of Passover lambs. That would make sense as to why Peter would have this and why he would go out into the crowd to wage war with this weapon. But he goes after the weakest guy there, the one who is the least likely to resist, He takes off his ear probably because this weapon is not going to be able to do that much damage, not in comparison with the battle swords that all of the Roman soldiers have ready to resist any revolt that might take place or any revolution. They are there in order to arrest a person supposedly guilty of sedition. So they are ready. They are ready for battle. Now, of course, things do not work out in the way that it appears Peter was expecting. He led the charge, but nobody else followed. Jesus put a stop to it right away in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews Arrested Jesus and bound him. So Peter tried to resist the arrest of Jesus, but Jesus stopped him and made it clear that this is the way things are going to be. Now considering what happened earlier when Jesus asked them, who are you looking for in verse four? And they said they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responded with the I am he phrase that most likely was a declaration that he was the living God. They drew back in verse 6. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This was a big deal. So these guys already know that Jesus could resist if he wanted to. Obviously, with just a phrase like this, perhaps with some resonance, maybe there was some lightning. We don't have all the details concerning what would inspire all of these soldiers and officers, to hit the ground. But whatever it was, it was a significant emotional event for these guys. A very serious, memorable event for them to hit the ground. But now they can see that Jesus is not going to resist. They go ahead and they arrest him and they bind him. Now, all of the gospel writers recorded that Peter took off this guy's ear. Hey, Peter went in and he took off this guy's ear. But Luke is the only person who recorded the healing of Malchus's ear. And this was important because if Jesus did not heal the damage that Peter just caused, well, then Peter would have been arrested and he would have been put on trial and maybe he would be executed as well or he might lose his ear. And so Jesus was very kind to do the healing so that Peter wouldn't have to deal with all the problems related to what he just did. In front of all these people, there were plenty of witnesses who could testify that, yeah, this is what Peter did. And so he would have been arrested. He would have been put on trial. But Jesus healed Malchus's ear. And so Peter was allowed to go free. But Jesus was arrested and he was taken. Where did they take him? In verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. They took him to Annas? They should have taken him back to the Roman compound. In order for there to be a detachment of troops, of Roman soldiers, in order for this to take place, it was necessary for Jesus to be accused of violating Roman law. And Judas was the witness. He was the person who would have accused Jesus before the Romans in order to obtain the detachment of troops. But they don't take Jesus to the Roman compound like they were supposed to in this kind of a situation, in this kind of circumstance. Why? It's my opinion, even though we don't have this recorded, that Judas disappeared. To me, that's the only explanation. In my opinion, it is obvious that this is not what Judas expected. I've spoken about this a lot in the previous messages, that I believe that Judas expected Jesus to resist, and that the war would begin, and Jesus would win, and he would be established as the messianic king in Israel. Judas was going to help him out with this, and instigate the circumstances through which this could probably take place. But Jesus doesn't resist. He allows himself to be arrested. When Judas saw this happen, he left. He was gone. And so if you no longer have the person who accused Jesus in your presence, you no longer have access to him. You need him in order to testify against Jesus during the trial. If he's gone... Well, then what do you do with him? You can't take him back to the Roman compound without Judas. It's not going to work. This would be in violation of Roman law. So where do they take him? They take him to Annas. Now, this is very awkward because Annas was not recognized as a person of authority in the land at this time. Not by the Romans. The Romans did not recognize Annas, who was the legitimate high priest of Israel at that time. The Romans did not recognize his legitimacy. Instead, they put Caiaphas, his son-in-law, in power in order to assert their authority, knowing that Caiaphas would be loyal to the Romans, of course. And if he decided to be disloyal to the Romans, well, he's not really the legitimate high priest anyway, according to the people. So they'll just replace him with someone who will be loyal to them. That was the situation between Annas and Caiaphas. So Annas did not have any real power there in Israel. What he had was the desire of the people that he have this authority but he did not have what he would need in order to function as the high priest because the Romans intervened. So why are they taking Jesus to Annas? What is this about? What's the reason for this? What's the purpose for this? Well, it could be there is a possibility that some of the people knew that Caiaphas was maybe not ready for Jesus to arrive And to have a trial there, that is a possibility. I don't think that's the case, but it is a possibility that I will mention as something that could have been going on, and they might have made that decision, saying to themselves, hey, look, you know, Caiaphas is not ready for Jesus to just show up. Let's take Jesus over to Annas, and then we'll go talk to Caiaphas while he's over there, and we'll get everything situated and set up over at the home of Caiaphas, while Annas is keeping Jesus busy. Maybe we'll do it that way. That's a possibility. I don't think that that's the case, but I'm willing to say that that's a possibility. What I think happened was that they decided to take him to Annas because of the significant emotional event that took place in verse 6. In John chapter 18, verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. It appears to me, that it is obvious that they just experienced a divine event. And now they've captured the guy. They've, they've bound the guy. He's, he's allowed them to do so and they have to do this because that's what they're required to do. That's what they were sent out to do. They've got this guy who obviously has tremendous divine influence to say the least to cause them all to hit the ground like that. And so I believe that for them, this was a religious experience and a very profound religious experience for these guys. And so when they realized that it wouldn't do any good to take them back to the Roman compound, in fact, they have a reason not to do that because Judas apparently has disappeared. He's no longer participating in what's going on. What would they do? Well, considering the religious experience that they just had, it would make sense, under those conditions, to take him to the real, legitimate high priest, Annas. Take him to Annas. Let's not take him over to Caiaphas, because we all know that Caiaphas is not God's guy. We know that. But Annas is the legitimate high priest. He really is the religious representative of the land, even though the Romans would not allow him to assert his authority, everybody knew he was the head religious guy. So, considering that we just had this profound religious experience, let's take him to the religious guy. Let's take him there. That would make more sense. They're not going to just release him because, who knows, Judas might show up again, for all they know. And then they're really going to be in trouble because they released Jesus. So they take him to Annas, the legitimate high priest in this circumstance. That's verse 13, John chapter 18, verse 13. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And I explained this in the previous messages when he said that. In verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, it's quite likely that this was John, the person who was writing this letter, and he didn't name himself The way that he wrote this, there is an indication that he is referring to himself. But whoever it is, this is a disciple of Jesus, someone who is present there. And this person has a relationship with Annas. The kind of relationship that would allow him to have access into Annas' home without any resistance. I think this is very interesting To see, very interesting and very important to pay attention to, that one of Jesus' disciples, probably John, who was writing this letter, had this kind of relationship with the high priest of Israel at this time. He had relationships with people who were highly influential in the temple, in the religious circles of influence. It's probable that he had relationships with some of the chief priests, many of the head Pharisees, many of the scribes. If this is the case, then John was the kind of guy who could effectively speak the language of different groups of people, and he could maintain relationships with different groups of people, people who would disagree with the other people that he knew. Now, I believe that this is reflected in the book of Acts, for example, and in the book of Galatians, where Paul mentions John, and also in John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you can see in the way that he writes in many places, you can see that he writes in ambiguous ways that can be interpreted differently depending on who is reading what he is writing. In other words, someone who wants to live in devotion to the Mosaic law would read some of the things that John says from one point of view, and yet those who want to live by grace and grace alone, and in accordance with the new covenant and the inheritance we have already received, that's a different kind of person, and they would interpret some of the things that John said differently. So he wrote in somewhat ambiguous ways, so that depending on who is reading what he wrote, they would interpret it differently. This is a skill, and I believe that this is represented through his relationship with the high priest of Israel and his relationship with Jesus and the other disciples, Now, I do believe that John has deep convictions concerning Jesus as being the Messiah, but these are important things to consider when you read the letters that John wrote, when he wrote those letters later, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. Again, in John chapter 18, verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. That was the first time that he denied Jesus. And you have to consider what's going on to appreciate why Peter may be motivated to deny his affiliation with Jesus. Jesus was just arrested. He's going to be put on trial. He's probably going to be executed. If Peter declares that he is one of his disciples, the people might not look favorably upon Peter, They may attack him. They may even arrest him. They might even put him on trial for some ridiculous charge that he's not guilty of as well. There is great risk involved. In addition to this, Peter just took off this guy's ear. He could have been in a lot of trouble. You know, all of this stuff is happening, and it could easily result in a lot of disorientation in Peter's mind. He really doesn't understand what's taking place. And all of these different things have just happened in this short amount of time during this evening. It's reasonable for him to be afraid and uncertain. It's reasonable for Peter to default to this form of dishonesty and say, no, I'm not one of his disciples, just because he is struggling to discern and understand what's going on anyway. And so why? add the additional complications to everything that's going on by letting people know that you're one of Jesus' disciples. Let's just deny that because there is so much taking place. Peter could easily do this just as a reaction to all of the disorientation, to all of the disruptions, to all of these things that are going on that he certainly did not expect. Now, I'm not saying that in order to give him an excuse or to say that this is okay. I'm just trying to describe the circumstances that are taking place that would make it reasonable. That if you understand that some of these things are happening, you can say that this is understandable. Moving on into verse 18, John chapter 18, verse 18. Now, the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. What Jesus effectively says in response to this question is, why are you asking me? What business do you have of asking me? Now, remember, this is the high priest Annas, the guy who has no authority, really, in the land, in effect. Jesus shouldn't even be here. Annas knows this. If Annas is going to hold a trial, which this is effectively a trial. This is the first trial that Jesus underwent or that Jesus was subjected to. If Annas is going to preside over this trial in order to determine a judgment over this prisoner, over Jesus, if he's going to do that, then it's expected that he is going to follow the laws of the Sanhedrin, with regards to trials. And according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, the high priest should not be asking Jesus these questions. Jesus should not be expected to testify against himself. The laws of the Sanhedrin forbade a person from testifying against themselves, Because they might have a mental issue, or they might be suicidal, or they might be trying to protect somebody else and assume the blame for what somebody else did. For these reasons, the testimony of the person who committed a crime was never allowed in a trial. There had to be two or more witnesses. This is in accordance with the Mosaic Law, where are the witnesses in effect this is what jesus says in response you want to ask me about things where are your witnesses what are you doing asking me you're supposed to have witnesses you want to have a trial you want to issue judgment against me or for me or whatever you want to do that you go get your witnesses and jesus made it abundantly clear That what he had to say, he has already said, he has done so publicly everywhere in the temple and in the synagogues where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. So where are your witnesses? In verse 21, why do you ask me? Why do you ask me in the sense of why are you violating the Mosaic law? And where are your witnesses who are going to give some kind of accusation, whether it be legitimate or not? There has to be some kind of accusation and some kind of evidence, some testimony concerning these things. Who do you think you are to ask me these kinds of questions in this way? Another way that this could be interpreted is Jesus could be telling Annas, you should pay attention to who you are, and if you're going to hold a trial, you better do it right. And this is not right. That is effectively what he said. So then in verse 22, And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Well, what's he doing hitting him, striking him? He shouldn't do that either, because... According to the laws of the Sanhedrin, no one should be beaten before they are convicted of being guilty of a crime. But I want you to see the response of the officer in the context of what Jesus said in response to what the high priest asked him. So the whole environment is definitely emotionally charged. There is a lot of opportunity for frustration and misunderstanding. And so in verse 23, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? So Jesus speaks to the officer who hit him and invited him to bear witness. Come on, where the witness is. Are you a witness? You want to be a witness? Let's have it if I've done any evil of any kind, even right now. Bear witness. Give your testimony. Go ahead and accuse me and be the witness. Don't strike me in violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. Jesus had every right to speak as he did because the high priest Annas was in the wrong. Thank you for listening. This is the 115th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in John chapter 18, verses 10 through 23. And in this program, I spoke about the arrest of Jesus, especially with regards to the soldiers falling to the ground when they came to arrest him and he told them that he was the Divine Presence. From there, I explained that they took him to Annas, the high priest, most likely because of the religious experience that they just had. In losing their witness, Judas, Judas apparently disappeared. In losing their witness, they would not be able to hold a trial at the Roman compound for the accusation that Judas made in order to obtain the detachment of troops. So they arrested Jesus as they were instructed to do so. But the detachment of troops decided not to release him. Otherwise, they could be responsible for releasing him, especially if Judas surfaces again. So there was a decision to take him to Annas, the person who was not recognized by the Roman government as having any legitimate authority of any kind. He was the high priest recognized by the people, but the Romans established his son-in-law Caiaphas as the high priest. So I explained that it's likely that they took Jesus to Annas because of the religious experience that they had in falling to the ground. So they decided to take Jesus to the religious guy, to the guy who was the representative of God. They knew who he was, even though... The Roman government did not officially recognize him as having any authority. And then it appears that the Roman detachment of troops left him there with Annas effectively transferring responsibility for the prisoner away from themselves and over to Annas. (laughs)